So welcome back to the Diaries of the Wild Ones. Now, this episode is a little bit of a naughty boy episode, so I'm using a different sponsor for it. But it is something that I'm extremely passionate about and something that I really believe in because what's good for the earth is good for us. And with this at heart, my mate Luke is working for all of us. Not far from my place at Crescent Head, Luke has an organic hemp farm and he's making some really nice hemp oils. Although they are only for topical use only in Australia due to current legislation, we all know how good this stuff is for us. The science is in, guys. So many people around the world, including Australians, are having miraculous benefits from this stuff. I myself put a little bit under my tongue before I go to bed. Now, my mate Luke is a pioneer with this stuff, helping many Australians get well soon. I actually just appreciate and respect what he's doing so much for having so much love in his heart and working so hard just to just to help the benefit of other people, just to help heal the health of other people. So guys, get well soon, Australia. On Instagram or getwellsoon.com.au, you can purchase your own hemp oil there, made here locally in Australia, supporting small business and supporting a great bloke. So that is getwellsoon.com.au and you can purchase your very own CBD hemp seed oil and you can start getting the benefits today. Okay guys, so this episode is is a great episode. It's it's heartbreaking, it's heartwarming, it's inspiring. And I just really want to thank this couple Sarah Kai and Sam for hanging out with me. I was I'm so honored to have met both of you. You're both amazing people and Sarah Kai Thank you so much for having the courage to open up and tell us, like me and the audience, your story. You're such a you're such a beautiful woman, and I'm just so so honoured. Enjoy, guys. Yeah. So you're comfortable? Yeah. And Sam's opened a beer for me. Yeah. And, okay, can you hear that? Can you hear that background? There's a women's circle going on down in the corner on Uncle Roger's place. And I know we're going to get interrupted here quite a bit. We are sitting in the middle of the rainforest down on a river with a women's <laughs> circle going on with people walking in and out and engaging with us. So I think, um, I think that, I think it'll be fine. I think when people come, we'll just say hi and we'll just, as long as you feel <laughs> comfortable to, um, to tell your story. Yeah, totally. Sarah Kai. <laughs> that is me. What, what a nice name. My sister's name's Sarah, and it's a wonderful name, but you've got like a little... A little add-on. Yeah, a little twist to it. Yeah. Sarah Kai. Guess what it means? What? Princess of food. And I'm a chef, and food's like been my whole journey. And I only found that out when I was like 18 and serving a Maori. And he was like, dude, your name means princess of food. Really? Like, oh. Yeah, Because cool. when you first said that, I was thinking like maybe you had a love for food because you thought you should because of your name. No. But no, you no, literally... I was already there. You had a connection there already. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Serica. So you and Sam, I find this so fun. I find this so fun because I got told um, it would be amazing to interview you guys while you're traveling around. But um, we actually connected because I buried some treasure yesterday up <laughs> at Turtle Rock and put it put it on social media and you read the map and went and found it. Yeah, a good little journey. <laughs> it was perfect. Yeah, and so now, now we're sitting here, but I'm a... I'm a bit nervous about this story because I've I've seen you talk lightly about it, and every time you have, I can I can see your eyes and your body fill with emotion and <laughs> and yeah 
And yeah, so I know you've got a... a, a There's you, definitely some angles going on, but I'm it, pretty comfortable with the situation. Are you comfortable? Just yeah. Like, where would you like to start? Um, I guess it's warranted ground to start with that I grew up in like the idyllic childhood in a small town in the bush called Wollombi. And, and uh, that's in northern New South Wales? No, that's in the Hunter Valley. Oh, I was wondering when you are saying Wollombi before, I was like wondering where that was. Yeah. And it's a tiny little alternate town where I guess a bunch of hippies settled and like there's no suburbs in the town. There's just like a pub and a shop and then all sorts of alternate houses off around in the in the bush everywhere. And the shack that I grew up in was just like an old tin shed that I think a dude had built like as an experiment as a welder teaching his taste class. And so it's not council approved. You're not supposed to live in it. And that's what I grew up in. It's a pretty wild shack. Everything that lives outside is also inside. It's one of them. You know? Yeah, kind of like the house we're in now. Yeah, exactly. Did you see the the spider? The spider mm. <laughs> in my <laughs> uncle's house. Yeah, is that real? Well, the, the, the thing is, like, when... when <laughs> I definitely had a few moments with that. Yeah. We kind of... There's this huge spider web in my uncle's house with... with is it, what type of spider? Gold spider. But like spider. a ginormous golden gold spider. And, and I live in the bush too, and, and my uncle and I, I think we sh- share the same, the same mind frame, mindset on this. It's like we, we live with nature and nature lives with us. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, like, I'm all about that, but I will move the spider web. <laughs> yeah. Like I won't kill the spider, but I will move it. <laughs> so so you, you grew up in a similar similar situation, being yeah. connected in, in with nature kind of thing. Mm, in this, totally. In this, um, this unregulated wait what's the word for it unapproved yeah uncouncil approved uncouncil dwell yeah and i went to a tiny little primary school i think it's worth saying that sam grew up just over the mountain from where i grew up in the hunter valley and he was in another tiny little primary school and i actually used to like breed doves and take them to his school but i never met him so our lives have kind of like synced kind of close but far away you know and now you've come together <laughs> yeah <laughs> a love story <laughs> and um yeah i joined the Hare krishnas when i was eight years old yeah t- tell me about that like how did how did that come to be like how did you feel drawn to the Hare krishnas well we're in a tiny town i'm a tomboy all of the kids of my age group are all boys and we're just bashing around the bush and then all of a sudden this temple had moved from sydney or something and built a tiny little temple on the neighbouring town called Millfield, and all of the kids from there had come to our school. And all of a sudden we opened up a different scripture class, and that was Hare Krishna scripture. And I don't know, the religion had so much colour and so much joy and so much energy about it, and the food and everything was just so attractive to me that I kind of delved to that scripture class. And then I came home and I said to Dad, I don't want to eat meat anymore. It doesn't make sense to me that we're eating meat and dad already didn't eat red meat and grew up as a yogi and blah blah, blah. and so he was fully supportive and he but sat me was down it, was he a Hare krishna no but yeah. like i don't know he's just form, open you yeah just some you. form of yogi that yeah. he was but i came home and said that i wanted to join it and he was like all right we'll we'll read some of the bhagavad gita and see if you still feel the same and as a small eight-year-old i somehow was interested in the bhagavad gita and then at the end of it i was like yeah i want to do this and so mom and dad were just full support and like took me to temple on Sundays and did it all. Like mom would come to the temple and she's totally atheist and not into religion, but she'd just support me in that and she'd work in the gardens and stuff and let me do my, my prayer. And I got really into Indian dancing and yeah, it was, was amazing. Was, were you, okay, I, I know that there was other Hare Krishnas there because they came to your school and that's, that's how you found it. Mm. But 
were you like a minority? Were you like this odd kid that was like, oh, hey, I'm no. just going to go be a full Hare acceptance. So everyone that you just hung out with, just, that was just you now. You're just yeah. being a Hari. Yeah. And being it was a great. Krishna. Hari or being a Krishna? Oh, Hari Krishna. Hari Krishna. Yeah. Being a <laughs> yeah. So how was that journey? And like, Bye, I guys. found Have Indian dance. <laughs> People just walking past. Yeah. I found Indian dance and I delved into that heaps and that was kind of like my real, real draw card. And then the food started just... I've always been obsessed with some form of food in a different lane in different parts of my life. And yeah, I fully got into that. And it was on this big farm with cows that we could milk and whatnot. And yeah, amazing, amazing. But then I started finding that I was getting really weak in dancing class and my knees weren't holding up. So how old? Um, I was about 11 when this started happening. Yeah. So this is like two years into the Hare Krishna journey. Yeah. And, and so two just, years without eating meat as well? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um, really, I can't explain the weakness. It was like I'd be walking and my knee would just buckle out from underneath me. And weakness like to the point where it was in my jaw and there was some bruises and I was having hectic, hectic growing pains at night time and waking mum up screaming and stuff. And she was like, There's, something's not right here. And I'd barely seen a doctor up until that stage. As I said, super alternate childhood, super pure foods, everything. Yeah. You know, it's a dream. But um, I started getting sicker and sicker and I heard a voice in my head one day that said, no one can know what's going on with you or else the whole world changes. Wait, say that again? Yeah. A voice inside your head that said what? No one can know how sick you are or else the whole world changes. And so I started trying to hide my symptoms. And so I was trying to hide things from mum and I remember one pivotal day. We went to the public swimming pool with another group of Hare Krishna kids. And I couldn't float or swim or hold myself up, which I'd always been able to do. Like at 11, you're fully functional, you know. And I stayed in the shallow end and I was really trying to hide it from mum, but she was kind of watching me and like, something's going on here. Do you reckon that they had red flags before this? Like, Do you reckon you were just hiding it well? I remember mum starting to talk about it to other parents before this. and, And I just knew that... We couldn't talk about it, which is fucking weird. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's a weird angle. And um, I got out of the pool and mum had made some jats for us to eat. And I was so weak that I couldn't bite through a jat. Like, I couldn't bite a biscuit and chew it. And then she was watching me and she was like, no, tomorrow we go to the doctor. And I begged her. I was like, no, 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 no. We don't, we don't need to go. I'm fine. I could just feel a little bit something. And then she, she had a blood disorder called um, polycythemia. So she had a really good doctor and the next morning she took me to her doctor and I remember he examined me and did like all the little things that they do, which was all amazing to me because I'd never really been to a doctor. And I remember when I left the room, I, I stood back a bit and I heard her say to him, do you think it could be leukaemia? What? <laughs> and so my ma- the doctor was like, no, 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 there's no way it could be leukaemia. I don't even know why you're thinking that. The symptoms are wrong. But there is a virus going around at the moment that is deadly, and I think she has that. Why would your mum, is she just intelligent? She is the most in tune mother. <laughs> so, so, so she just literally said that out of intuition? Yeah. And she'd never known anyone with leukaemia. Like, she she was a nurse in her much younger years, but yeah. but there's no reason why she would have that chosen that. Tr- yeah. And the doctor said no, you know. Anyway, the next morning at 10am, <laughs> we got a phone call from the doctor and I remember mum going to the phone those, those days, you know, phones were to the so, wall. So he had done some tests, obviously, and yeah, sent him away. Yeah, he'd done a blood test and um, sent that away. 
And then, yeah, I remember him just saying to her, Annette, you better sit down for this one. And she looked over at me weird and sat down. And then he must have gone on with, you were right, it is leukaemia. And, like, I remember her coming to me on the lounge and I'm, I can't really walk much by this stage as well. Like, I'm fully stationed on the lounge. You know when you've been in bed for so long that your hair's, like, becoming dready and it's all knotted and crap? I remember her coming over to me and I was a bit of a mess and she explained that I had leukaemia and I've got no idea what leukaemia is. (laughs) Like, I don't even connect it as cancer because I've never really heard the word leukaemia at 11, you know? But I know it's hectic. Yeah. My godmother comes over. Was your mum upset no or was she trying to be strong she's the strongest woman in the world (laughs) yeah she would wasn't going to show me her fear her soft side yeah not at that point but she just got a lot got on with it she's got me up and started trying to brush those dreadlocks out of my hair and um chucked me in the car and i remember halfway to the hospital she stopped to get petrol and i looked at her and i was like this isn't good is it mum and she was like no darling this isn't great, but we'll be fine. We'll do it. And I was like, all right, cool. Wow, what a powerful woman. What a, whoa. And like, how's the intuition? Yeah. Like, wild. Anyway, so I live like in the middle of the bush, as I said, so it's quite a drive to the hospital. And I remember every bump hurting me because by this stage I'm just so weak that all your muscle mass is like... Yeah. So leukemia eats the muscle away, doesn't it? Well, leukemia is a blood cancer. Yeah. And so... Your white blood cells don't get replaced. Yeah, exactly. Or no, I think your white blood cells are overproducing and they're eating everything else. I think. Yeah, destroying each other. But it's everywhere. So it's affecting everything. It's affecting like your organ function, your muscle mass, your sight, you know, everything. And by this stage, I think it was quite, quite there. And so we finally get to the hospital. And can you imagine that whirlwind for me? Like, I'm just from the bush and everything's so just trees and and simple. And then I'm in this weird hospital in Newcastle and they've got me in a side room and they're talking about how I'm in that room because I'm a special kid. And it all just didn't sit right, you know. Yeah, it's quite overwhelming and strange. And I think we're at that hospital for a fair few hours before I was in an ambulance and going to Sydney because in these days you can't have cancer treatment in any smaller hospital like it's quite a it's quite a feat and you have to have oncologists there so we had to go all the way to Sydney which is a three-hour drive yeah you know and for you to the, yeah to the big smoke was it, do you remember being scared was it or yeah. Exci- yeah yeah I remember being in the back of the ambulance and my uncles had come to wave me off and I remember them being outside oh First, I remember ringing dad on the job site when we first got the phone call because he's at work and I've rang dad and the poor guy, (laughs) all I say into the phone is, daddy, I'm scared and then burst into tears and then give the phone to mum. And when we pulled up at the hospital in Newcastle, they were already there. I remember this dramatic moment like from a movie where they were outside the car and I put my hand up on the window, but I was so weak that I couldn't hold it there. So it like slid down the window. And yeah, I remember the look in the boys and dad's eyes at that moment. Like I knew shit was about to get pretty real. <laughs> yeah, oh wild. My God. And 11. Yeah. It's a pretty wild age to be doing that. Yeah. So, <laughs> I, can, I, I can tell that um, I'm in for an emotional roller coaster just because right now, right now, like I, I, it, 
I'm looking at you and just and thinking, looking at you as an 11 year old girl being so scared in that, in that situation. And just, it's kind of like heartbreaking in a way. And, and I'd grown up as like a bush kid with two brothers, 10 years older. So everything was about being strong. Yeah. Everything. And, you know, and then all of a sudden it was like, oh, fuck, <laughs> it's getting quite real. And I don't really feel that strong and in control anymore. Whereas that was always quite a big part of my yeah, yeah, personality, you know? So, so what happened when you got to the hospital? Oh, we got to that next hospital and they put us in emergency and that went on for ages. They should have taken us straight to a cancer ward, but there was some kerfuffle with paperwork or something and we're in emergency for quite a few hours until about midnight when, like we'd left at 10 a, after 10am when we got the phone call and by this stage it's midnight and we're in an emergency room in Sydney. I remember mum getting quite, <laughs> quite aggressive with the doctor and just being like, what the fuck? Get my daughter to a ward. She needs to go to sleep. And then I was shifted to a ward. And the next morning I woke up in a whole nother universe. You know, like surrounded by different tiny rooms of other kids that are sick. Because a ward, you're all just like separated by a sheet. Yeah. And that's wild. And your whole world just changed. Well, shifted. Shot put into city life as well. And different humans and different lingo and yeah everything is so alien so different it's wild and then yeah very scary do you now uh, and i know there's a whole whole story that you're you're about to tell but do you now (laughs) do you still like do you still get nightmares from just even like is this something that like even though you've gone through all this like is it still something that like just does it taunt you Oh, like I definitely had. Memories? I definitely had post-traumatic stress for a lot of years. Even the needle, like to give a child a needle on chemo, you can't put it into their vein because the vein will collapse from the chemo. So you have to put a whole fucking device in this child's chest, which is a a plastic circle with like half a rubber ball on top of it, and it's got a hole through that, and that connects to a tube that sits, and that thing sits here, and then the tube goes up through your chest. And there's a cut here in my neck, you can see. And then the tube goes through there and sits directly on your heart. And they pour the chemo on your heart. <gasps> what? But to have this needle, they have to get it into that rubber ball. So it's basically holding... <laughs> they have to hold you there and go, one, two, three, poof. And I've still got all scars just from the pure size of the needles that they'd have to put chemo through. But that, doof, like, oh, jolts again. I can't describe it. Jolts against so, your ribs with force, you know. So you're an 11-year-old girl just get, getting stabbed with needles. Yeah, and everything's How just so you, against your will. Just like, wait, let, let's... So sorry. Oh my god! Oh, get so it. Much. <laughs> get it. Go for it. Okay, so how did the journey start? Getting waking up that first morning into the hospital, like. Like, suddenly, like, did, did they know... How sick were you? Like, how far down well, the leukaemia rabbit hole? I don't think anyone really you? knew for that first little bit. And the first bit's such a whirlwind in my mind of everyone, the mum and dad and me, trying to find our place in this mm. new world we were in. <clears throat> and I remember the next morning waking up and there was a there was a girl crying because she had ulcers all down her throat. And every time she sipped water, it was excruciating pain. And, like, that's a natural thing that happens with chemo because they wipe out your immune system that then things just start getting a bit wild in the old body. But I remember watching that and 
looking around and it took about three weeks, I think, until it hit me that everyone was bald. And we're all in this wall together. And at 11, I had a tiny little bit of knowledge about cancer. My grandmother had died of cancer. And it just hit me. Like, I turned to mum and I was like, mum, do I have cancer? And she had, I remember the heartache in her eyes. And she had to say, yeah, you do. But she was so strong that she was always do, like, yes, you do. But do you know, you like, was it hereditary? Like, no, do you, no, not at all. Do you know where, or where do you think you might have got where you're sick? There's a few different angles that goes on with that. A lot of people believe that childhood cancers must be from past life or something that you've brought into this life because it doesn't make sense. Like I've had all pure foods, blah, blah, blah. But in the neighbouring town to our town is a place called Singleton. Yeah. Singleton. Oh, Singleton. Yeah, you're in that area. Yeah, yeah. Singleton. And in Singleton world. there's a big like army base and heaps yeah. of stuff. Anyway, they reckon that the soil around there has a super high concentration of metals and there is some link that they haven't figured out yet but they're still studying where everyone with leukemia has got a really high percentage of metals in their blood like heavy metals yeah coal mining area yeah. yeah and what's what's interesting about that is too it's the same like if you think about it oh, it always annoys me when people like like smokers or something they're like oh yeah but i know this dude who smoked their whole life and blah blah like we're such individuals we react to things so differently, you know what I mean? So, mm. like, how your body's going to react to something is going to be so, so different to how Sam's body's going to react, totally. you know what I mean? So, it's like, that could have been that weak link in your body where your body couldn't, didn't have the means to process that or something. I don't, I don't know. I'm totally. not a doctor, but it's just like, yeah. But the esoteric answer is that leukemia particularly is directly derived from emotions that aren't dealt with. But, like, how's I was a heaps happy eleven year old, so yeah, and I don't that's, know if that so that's where the where the past life might come in. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But who knows? Nobody. Yeah. Nobody has an answer as yeah. of yet. You know. Yeah. So you you started this journey in in the in the hospital, and your mum's just told you you had the realization that you actually have have cancer. And then the protocol comes out, and you've got like a protocol that's your set treatment for yeah. what they think you need. Now, I'm just hitting puberty, so there's extreme cell growth and cell confusion already within the body. So that makes the cancer grow twice as fast. So they decide that my protocol will be an adult's dose, high dose of chemo oh my God. for 24 months. And I think everyone in this room right here, <laughs> Uncle Rog too, and like I had an uncle die of leukemia actually. Yeah, he, right. had a, he had a rare type and I watched him wither away in, in Indonesia. Um, but we've all seen people with, with that go through chemo and what it does to their body. What an extreme thing! Uh, like whoa. <laughs> so, yeah. So how did your body cope with that? Like how did this? I must. I think I must have a super strong spirit, because <laughs> having an adult's dose as well, it was pretty quick how it stripped me. Like it was within no time that. I couldn't walk anymore. I was obviously fully bald, but I was a skeleton. How did, how did that feel for you being a, an 11 year old girl coming into, coming into womanhood, coming into like primal beauty, you know, like you wanting to be a beautiful girl and like losing your hair, just the emotional, how was that just emotionally for you? The hair was all right, 
because mum painted glitter on my head every morning and she put fake tattoos of like tribal things on my head and she, she made the most of that. We got a wig for a tiny second, but I ended up hating it. I, like yeah. I was proud of my bald head. Yeah. But the main thing was like the loss of body function. I can't go to the toilet by myself anymore. I'm 11. Someone's got to put me on a potty and wipe me. Like, yeah, loss yeah. of body function is huge, you know. Everything's well, it, gone. It, this whole time, what are your, your parents doing? Like, did they have jobs that they had to see to? Like, what's what's happening Poor dad. With, with, <laughs> with your family structure, your unit yeah. structure being three hours away as exactly. well? Yeah, dad has to stay home and continue to work which is hectic for him. I remember there being slight down times where Israel, one of my brothers, would come and stay beside my bed for a little while and give mum a break. And there was always someone sleeping in a chair beside my bed for like over a year straight. Like that's wild for the family. So your, your, your mum would just stay at the hospital with you? Mm-hmm. And there was like a parent's room upstairs where she could sleep and stuff, but she stayed beside me. Oh, fuck, I want to hug your mum. mm She's a bloody good woman, that woman. Yeah. And poor dad, yeah, he had to stay and hold it all together and try and continue to make money because it's expensive being there too. Like, mum's got to eat. She doesn't get a hospital meal. I get hospital meals, which are also crap and you need some nutrients. But she's got to eat. Like, it costs money, petrol. We're a poor hippie family. We've got a shitty old bomb car. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty wild. And what what about your brothers? Do do you... Did they understand even being young themselves, even though being Well, they're both 10 years older. So Israel's 19 or no, 20 and Nehemiah's 21. And so they're both working as stonemasons full time with dad as well. And so they're all just keeping the family business going. Yeah. Nehemiah had more of a, a harder time coming to terms with the emotions. So he was more standoffish. Yeah. And Israel is like. Right there, <laughs> yeah. Right there beside me. Whereas Nehemiah, you know, obviously wanted to too, but the poor thing, he just he couldn't deal with it in the beginning. Yeah, which is it's, yeah. It, and it's how we all deal with stuff. I remember my mum had a brain tumor when I was like year twelve, or whatever, oh. and I just couldn't deal with it. I just didn't even go. And I remember um, this Mormon family came and bought flowers and took me to the hospital and made me go see mum because <laughs> I just didn't. It was just I didn't. I didn't. I I just Lose. pretended like everything's fine. Like I was like, nah, mum's fine. It's all fine. She just she'll be fine. Yeah. You know what I mean? I couldn't. I couldn't accept the fact something was going on. Yeah, it's quite a natural coping mechanism, I think. Yeah, and I, I think I cope differently now because I've I've learnt. But it's yeah. just um. Okay. Okay. So. <laughs> Wild. Yeah. And so I can't eat anymore. Well, you're vomiting all the time from chemo. Like it's constant. And you're vomiting until you're vomiting bile and blood because you can't vomit anything else. There's, there's, there's no more to give. That I remember that being like super traumatic, like just vomiting to the point where you're crying and you don't want to be vomiting, but you're still vomiting and it's involuntary, you know? Are you, are you ever like, I'm guessing there would have been a lot of emotion in this, like crying, like begging to mum or begging because it's hard when you're young to actually understand like why you need to do it. or like Totally, totally. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't feel like that. That really happened. But by the stage that I was being fed with a tube through my nose, and I couldn't even chew or stomach food because it was everything was too acidic. <laughs> and like you don't have taste buds anymore. You can only taste metal by this stage. Like you've lost all of that. 
And I remember being so, what's that word? Jaundice? No. What's that word where you go yellow? Jaundice. Yeah, jaundice. I remember being so jaundice and going a bit see-through and mum could see my organs and stuff. And I remember her putting me in the bath and the poor thing had to stop and, and be sick because it was, it was so confronting. <laughs> and I remember about that stage, I sat everyone down and I got my doctors. and well, I was you like, did? Yeah. And I just made a decision. Because I'm watching, I'm in a ward. I'm watching beds get emptied. And not everyone's going home. You know? So you're watching kids dying Kids are going. You. And they're, they're your friends too. Because this is all you know now. I don't have other kids to talk to. I only talk to adults that are parents of sick kids. And you only see sick kids because you're, you're just in a ward. Like everything outside of that hospital has gone now. And I've got this beautiful home. And so I just decided that I'd get everyone together <laughs> and have a little chat about how they could just let me go home and finish the chemo and let me go. And I could have a nice little bit of the end of life. Like I remember being that onto it at 11 that I was like... So you, you, you're watching... Oh my God. So you, you, you're watching other kids around you not, not make it. Yeah. And you're sitting in, and, you're, and you're watching... You're feel, you, your whole body is withering away yeah. and you've suddenly had this realisation that I don't want to die in hospital. And that's the reality that yeah. you're facing. Like, that is literally the reality. And, like, it was a really honest conversation. I remember the nurse just being like, we can't do that. There's such there's a chance that you're going to walk out of here and we can't just end that chance. My God, God. But I was in remission. I don't know. Maybe five months in or something. But you've got to keep doing the fucking 24-month protocol. So I'm in remission, so I'm cancer-free. Is the cancer's been killed and then they've got yeah. to keep doing chemo? And they can't find the cancer anymore, but the fear is that, like, it's like my knees were shot when the symptoms were coming on. So the fear is that there's some cancer cells hiding in there or hiding somewhere, and if you stop chemo, that'll give them a chance to grow back. But chemo is this balance where, with leukaemia, like with breast cancer, you can localise it because yeah. you know where it is. Or you can cut it out and you can send chemo just there. With leukemia, as I said, they're dumping it on my heart and my heart's pumping it all through my body. And so you're killing every cell to kill the cancer cell. So it's a fucking game of just getting someone to just alive enough to keep them alive but continue to kill all the cells. And so my mum's super alternate. She's starting to sneak in supplements. She's growing wheatgrass, giving me wheatgrass shots, which I hated and I found super traumatic. So, it, so your, your mum's doing side research? Just yeah. Like, like natural way, or ways to like keep, the, keep the body alive? Exactly. But in doing that, my immune system's growing. And so the cancers are dumping more. The, I mean, the doctors are dumping more chemo. They're like, up it. She's, she's got growth. Because even though it's healthy cell growth, it's still cell in growth. their mind, it's just still cell growth. How wild's that? <laughs> so, so what your mum? Okay, so well, 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 let me get this straight. So, your mum <laughs> is researching healthy alternatives to get to for pro cell growth. Yeah, to, to, to strengthen to, me while yeah to enhance cell growth, right? Mm. And the doctors are looking at this, going, "Well, the cells are growing." Let's see so what your mum is doing to help you is actually going in reverse, just because of the system that mm, you're exactly. putting. Yeah, and then she's put um, colloidal silver into my nasal gastric tube and colloidal silver is a pretty wild thing for anyone like it's a 
it's a real detoxer. It pushes mm. things out. Is that silver? Yeah, yeah. diluted into water. Yeah. And like it's amazing. And they've used mm. it for thousands of years for leukemia and cancers, you know. It's what it does. But my entire body is a chemical right now. And so it's going to make me want to push everything out. So I started getting a wild growth on my leg. And it's growing pretty fast. It's real hot and I can't walk anymore. And my, my foot's like turned in and I've lost like a bit of mobility how, there. How old are you at this stage? Is 12. This, you're 12 now? Like I've had my birthday in a hospital yeah. with everyone in the ward. And um, it's growing so much that they're, they're like drawing an outline on it at night time. And then seeing if it's grown in the morning and kept doing it. And then after a while, they did a biopsy on that and they found that it was staph infection. And so my body's pushing out so much stuff that's turned into staph. And yeah. staph's like dangerous for you, mm. <laughs> you know, yeah. before you're, yeah. you're a small child I've, on chemo. I've been in hospital with staph. It's fucking hectic. Yeah. <laughs> and then the staph takes a turd and I get like a hundred like pimply growths on my head and everyone's starting to trip out. And they're like, oh. Oh, shit. That's happening. Oh. We've just had a car accident. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. Isn't that your new troopy? Yeah. Someone just ran into my new troopy. My uncle just came in. <laughs> That's pretty wild. <laughs> and we're just like, cleaning out it out. I need to have a smoke at this point. Okay. Let, wait. Do you... Uh, oh, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, like that. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> is that car right? Yes and no. I just clipped the mirror. Ooh. Oh, okay. Look at the mirror's just clipped. Okay. Damn it, that was a bit okay, that was a bit wild. Wild times. Um, I don't know why she's driven. Okay, anyway. Do we have a ashtray apparatus? That's uh yeah, this jar. <laughs> okay. Check. So. Where are we? I don't know, but can I have a puff on that? <laughs> There's not get? much in it. It's mostly Moline. I'm actually a bit scared to get high during this um, because this is very emotional. Oh, we're going to take a turn to good things because I'm here. Mm. No, no, no. <laughs> it's, it's, it's okay. Like you can't but get too dark because no, I'm I, here. Like, and that is beautiful. And what, what's actually really nice is while you're, while you're telling me this, I'm seeing the girl inside you, right? And I'm mm. seeing this little girl inside you and I'm looking at the woman that you've became. And like it's allowing me to really see you from like the heart space, like to really yeah, see. Right. And and plus because you're being so vulnerable right now, and you're showing your emotion, you're showing yourself. And I'm I'm sitting here, and just before I was like thinking about Sam, like I'm so happy that you guys are um, are together, and that like you're on this journey that you're We're pretty lucky humans. Yeah. Okay. There's. There's a little bit of drama going on <laughs> with cars and people running into shit. And fuck, I hope my car's alright. It's not even my car yet. <laughs> Don't crash into it before I fully get it. Okay, my uncle's driving it away now. Okay. So, alternative 
So, okay, so the silver, oh, and you've yeah, got this growth got, on your leg. We've got the staff. We're in staff town. So, yeah, yeah the staff's taking a turn, and there's like 100 tiny growths on my head. But they're all like kind of like staff boil, infections, boily, boils. pimply yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, people are coming into my room and fucking biopsying them. Now, I've, I've got no fat on me, particularly not on my scalp, and they're scraping needles into those little growths. I still vividly remember that. That was full on. What? Anyway. Are you... Could, do, do you remember much of like crying with pain? Like I know you said you had PTSD, but you're going through. With like, the pain, I had coping mechanisms that mum gave me early, which she definitely regretted. Every time I had a needle, I would scream to take my mind off the needle. We had to find new ones later on, like biting something, but just shifting the energy into something else so that you're not yeah. thinking about a thing that's happening. became a thing like I wasn't. I don't remember being too much of a crier. Do you find right now, as an adult, your pain threshold mm. is so much, you know... It can be dangerously bad. Like, sometimes I can be quite hurt, and I'm like, no, you're right. And then, yeah, we have to find out that it actually is something yeah. that I've just been putting up with for a while. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also served me in a lot of places, I guess. Yeah. Okay, so the, they're biopsying all the staff on your head. And we find we find out that it's staff, and then I have to go through courses of antibiotics, obviously, to get rid of that, which is then counteracting all of the good herbal work that Mum's done. And then um, I kind of cleared up pretty quick. And then I just got pretty sick again, and I had another nasal gastric tube. So by this stage, I've gotten the tube out of my nose, and I get the staff. It all goes downhill a fair bit from there. Like, why are you getting sick again just from your body? Like just Because re- I've had the staff and they're giving me so much antibiotics with the chemo at the same time and it's just like full depletion. There's nothing to build you back up. Like, you're not, I'm not eating, you know. And I, I don't know why, but every now and then you would get like to go home for a few days and home's an epic mission away. And I was on a mission at home this time and I had the nasal gastric tube still in and so when I was at home I'd carry around this little device where I'd have a little drip yeah. carrying it with me you know and I was back in that space of just kind of like giving up and not wanting to move forth and by this stage like heaps has happened we're already quite a fair way into chemo and I'm over it and I'm tired did you at the time did you have enough awareness to understand how much your mind strength like, um, like, yes uh, and no. Were, were you sitting there in the depth and the darkness as a, of your mind as a 12-year-old or an 11-year-old of, like, just not no. wanting to be there anymore? No, it was, it was heaps cleaner than that. It was just like, no, we've tried. It's just over. Like, it wasn't, so it was it like, wasn't it was as like despair as teenage me would have been, you know? Yeah. But I will say, like, the first time we went on a home trip from hospital after I was diagnosed... We got home and Dad painted my bedroom wall with, um, like, chalk board paint. Yeah. And we drew a massive lotus, which was um, the symbol of new beginnings and, you know. Yeah. We drew a massive lotus and we rode around the lotus, I will kill all of my leukemia cells. And so I had that at home and then I had a picture of that next to my bed in the hospital. And so I was always looking at that and that yeah. was always a thing and there was like... Yeah, that's There was intention into that. Yeah, the intention. So I'd say my parents, yeah, thank God for my parents. Like, what a force they were. But I'd given up again by this stage. 
And I was just like, I was at that stage where I was just sleeping for days on end, you know, because there's, there's nothing. I forgive, you could stay awake for a little while, but you'd end up just passing out. And my brother Israel told mum and dad that he just had to have a chat to me about everything because it was so heavy. Um, he came into my room and shut the door and had this tiny little joint rolled. <laughs> and explained to me that we we're going to smoke this joint. And I was like, I don't know how to smoke a joint. Like, what? And so he explained to me how to inhale. And I think I took one drag and I coughed my lungs up and I just passed out. And I woke up half an hour later and I just sat up and I was like, Mom, I need Vegemite toast. I need it. And I haven't eaten in months and months. <laughs> so she brings me in Vegemite toast and I had like one quarter of it or something. And I ended up vomiting it all up and then mm. having another sleep. But then I woke up and I ate strawberries. And I remember after that moment and that joint where I had one drag, you know, but it was like I'd climbed into my head and flicked a switch of hope. And it was like, yeah, I could find, I could find the reason to continue, mm. you know. Yeah, thank thank you, Israel. <laughs> thank you. I, I, I remember um, my mate's dad had had cancer, and um, he was started smoking weed or taking CBD oil. And one thing that they found was that because it's an appetite, that's the oppress- Yeah, like yeah. it was helping him eat. Yeah, exactly. It helps yeah. you eat, and it gives you a a slight amount of of joy or or different understanding of everything. Because I'm in such a like you're always in a ward. Everything just is one way and it's one way of thinking. But it was like that just opened me up to like what life was before it or something, you know. There was just something else. And then soon after that I went into um, outpatient care and then mum's just giving me chemo at night time at home. She's giving me needles at home at night and I go in once a fortnight and have some hectic needle that I can't walk for the day after. But I start like slowly building back from that joint (laughs) time on pretty much i start to grow a tiny bit of hair i start to put oh they start me on steroids (gasps) is that to to was the steroids to help you because they've been killing all your cells throughout your your growing years now that you need to catch back up yeah and there's something else that they do but i actually can't remember but you're on such a high dose of steroids it's really it's really fucking with my head like I'm coming out with all these aggressive bursts and locking myself in my room and having outbursts and stuff, you know. Mm. Poor Uncle, mum. Uncle Bodge, would you mind putting the lights on? Yeah. Thanks, mate. Is the car all right? Yeah. Is the car all right? Yeah. What's happened yeah, here? Just clip the mirror. Just clip the mirror, but it's not so much. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it sounded like a bang. It's going to be on this recording. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be like. Mm. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> and then yeah, I guess from there it was it was smooth sailing and and back to to trying to fit into normality again. That was really hard. So have you been given the green light? Do you ha- you do you? Ha- I'm, I'm guessing still, you've got I'm to get still having cons- chemo. So I'm still having chemo, but I'm having it from home, and it's just in tablets. And mum gives me one needle a day, and I go to the hospital once every couple of so weeks. So it's like a lighter dose by this stage. Exactly. And, and you go to the hospital once a week, and they check you and to see if you got steroids. cancer. Oh, yeah, but that's happening during the whole thing. There's just yeah. constant blood tests. But the cell growth is starting to happen, so you're getting hair and you're putting on weight, but you're putting on quite a rapid 
amount of weight and not like healthy because weight. Because they're giving you, know. you steroids. Yeah. Yeah, and it's making you cranky. And then all of a sudden everyone's like, cool, you're 13, you've got to go to high school. And I'm like, what? My whole life just went from doing this one thing to only focusing on this one thing to now you guys are just out of the hospital living back in your house and you're supposed to go back to normality and what is normality and what? Yeah. <laughs> and even like human interaction was just all so confronting by that stage. Because like, you, you would have got used to being isolated in, 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 the, ho- in the hospital. I started asking you to go back to hospital. Because I found safety in that. And I didn't feel safe if people weren't checking my temperature comp- constantly. And people weren't constantly checking that I was okay. Like, I didn't know what was going to happen. Because it had just been this fear bubble for so long. And rightly so. But that's where the post-traumatic stress really set in. It was like, boom, everyone's back to normal. And dad went through it. And mum went through it. Like, collectively, as a family, we all had to find life again. And nobody knew how to do it anymore. Everyone was like, What? <laughs> Yeah, that was really hard. And so I went to orientation for high school, fat, in a wheelchair, bald, well, tiny little bit of hair growth, with my mother pushing the fucking wheelchair in the roughest school in Australia in Cessnock. Like, even the town name sounds rough, Cessnock. Yeah. And that was my start to high school. (laughs) Like, talk about sending someone to the wolves. What was that like for... (laughs) To your self-esteem And I'm also guessing like very fun I remember having um, Kids like that at school Like And they get Brought in On like um, par- Is it par- What's par- When Once a week You have parade Oh assembly Assembly That thing And the kid getting uh, Whoever was You know Getting brought in The whole school Gets Introduced to them And like Hey we've got to look after them And did, did that- They certainly did not do that I would have died If they did that But, like, I've come from this tiny school, primary school, and tiny, I know everyone in my hometown, Mm. everything's totally normal, to then city life, but I know everyone in the ward, and there's a safety net in the ward, to now I'm at a school with a thousand kids, and everyone's rough and tough and doing their own thing, and I'm an alien, and everyone knows that I'm an alien. Mm. And because it's so rough, the survival is to be quite mean there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Did you? So you you felt alienated. You felt oh, different. Did you feel yeah. alone and just lost? Yeah, and I felt like I had to figure out how to fit in. Yeah, and it probably wasn't the best school to send me to to <laughs> try and figure out how to fit in. Yeah. And so were kids kids mean to you? Definitely. Yeah. Like just because they didn't understand. Oh, and it's just yeah. kids being kids. We all know yeah. that. Like, we, we they don't understand and, and some get on the trip if they're going to catch it or, yeah. 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 And, and starting in a wheelchair was really wild, but then that didn't last very long. Within no time I was walking at school and stuff. I remember one heartbreaking experience where there was a bald kid, like around the time of photos or something. And I had just grown this tiny little bit of hair and I was real proud about it. But I saw this bald kid and I thought, oh, he must have cancer. Cool. I found someone like me. And I went over and I like approached him about it. I can't remember what I said, but he did not have cancer. He was actually <laughs> a full on bogan that then just ostracized me for coming to him. And I thought I was finding some safety and normality. And yeah, I remember everyone looking at me and just blushing over my entire body. And yeah, it was, it was horrible. <laughs> did, did- did you have people that befriended you? 
Yes. Yes. But, yeah, I guess I had some nice friends. But it all turned pretty weird pretty quick in that school. And I ended up having having to leave there, I reckon. I must have lasted. I lasted two years. Yeah. And then I came home one day after being heavily bullied. I rang my brother Israel from sick bay. And I just told him I was sick. I didn't say what had happened. And he picked me up from school. And I actually hadn't had a joint since that time when I was 12. But he picked me up from school and he saw something was really wrong. And he took me on this wild journey in his combi, like some weird back way around to where we live. And we went bushwalking and stuff and smoked a joint. And um, picked up a puppy. <laughs> and turned up back home with a puppy. And I just walked straight in and was like, Mum, I'm not going back to school. We have to find me another school. And they did. They quickly shifted me, which is pretty good. <laughs> but yeah, well. Did that... Um, how do you feel about those kids now? Like, they would have had... In a different way, but more hectic things than what I had going on in my life. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. they were from a much different background, not surrounded with a huge abundance of love like me and full support like me. Yeah. And I've been home and I've seen them now and they're very different humans and they've lived a different life. And I understand where they were coming from, you know, in that aspect of... Fuck, but just... When humans just... are different and you're in that adolescent age, yeah. you do tend to kind of... And that's such a vulnerable age and to go... Okay, did, did you miss out, Uncle Roger, would you like? Passing a joint around. Sorry. Uh, did you did you um miss out on two years of school and then have to also were you also behind at school? Heaps behind. Yeah. So not only I didn't do any schooling in hospital, which a lot of kids did, but Mum was just like, "No, nah, we're focusing on this yeah. and this only." And so, fuck. So like, so I'm behind. And that that is fat. like <laughs> that is like where that sets you up for like adulthood, and you you don't seem too too shy now. You know what I mean? Like, but that's like having yeah. like such self-esteem, like. Yeah, it was pretty, it was, it's definitely, it's so hard to be a teenager generally mm. and with self-esteem and everything that's going on. And I guess that was heaps harder, but maybe it also gave me an understanding to deal with it and that it was transparent and it was going to shift from there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, so what was next? What, what happened with the journey next? <laughs> um, Were you still Hare Krishna? Yeah, yeah, like I'm still going to temple. So you went to this school in Cessnock. Mm. So you're like... And there was other Hare like such a minority in such a different way. So you're, you're a Hare Krishna, you're a cancer survivor. And I'm from Wollombi. And Wollombi made up 1% of the school or something. And we were looked at as wild hippies from the bush that were very different before all of my other yeah. story bits, you know? Yeah, it was definitely a minority. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but... Yeah, I still had a big... A big group of humans, but I would never say any of them were like great friends. <laughs> when when did you start feeling like you? Did you ever start feeling healthy in this stage? Well, at this stage, I'm feeling an immense amount of guilt for living. Like, why me? Why am I the one that got to survive? Which was a really fucked up headspace to work through. <laughs> like, I I believed at that age I'm not going to be something great, like a doctor or a all the things that you think are great at the age of 13. Mm. Why me? Yeah, you don't believe you know? in yourself. You just think, you, yeah. Yeah. Like I, I went through this big journey of that 
And then I guess I was really in that around the time that I left that school. And then from there, I found the world of Steiner School, which was a whole nother journey. Like in Steiner School, all of my differences were celebrated. Yeah. Instantly, like it was open communication about what I'd been through and... Mm. Yeah, and it was so, a totally different realm. So, just just for people at home, to squi- quickly describe uh, Steiner School. That's a, like a, from what I know, um, my ex went to Mon- Montessori. Um, it's like you're more encouraged to be who you are as a person and follow and follow your passions. Completely, and it's education of the mind, body, and spirit. And so, you still do all of the same subjects that you would at another school, but you will still go out in your art class and sit in nature and draw a tree and talk about how that tree came to be here and kind of link up all of the subjects together and it's a bit more real yeah it's much more real with with life and it's much more yeah it's much better to set you up into living in the actual world that we live in rather than that other form of education which is it's interesting you say this because like um you went the opposite way so you went you're in this like normal high school this 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 high school and then went to Steiner and then you found like, you know, acceptance and, mm. and, and love and just, and, and just, you know, like acceptance for being you. My, my ex, um, Alexi, she went to Montessori school and then year nine or year 10 then went to high school. And so she, they, her and her, her twin sister suddenly came into this world of judgment and you had to wear this. And I remember she was telling totally. me she got teased because the first couple of days, she wore the same clothes like twice in a row the first couple of days and they yeah. just got teased. And she was like, why are the people picking on me? Like, we're just all... Because she came from this like thing of acceptance to suddenly like a school where there was like bullying. and that like, be such a And because she didn't know how to... She didn't know how to deal with bullies because she never had them. She didn't understand. So it was like this really hard road. And, uh, and she ended up isolating herself and like hanging out. I remember she would just... Mm. I think from memory, she would just go have lunch in the library and hang out with the, um, was, yeah. But yeah, yeah, sorry, continue. Yeah, it's such a different world, that school. And I guess I'm really coming more into my confidence and, and myself in this school. And like, I'm so behind, as you said before. And your hair's still growing? Yeah, my hair's, on oh, my hair, it's pretty, it's pretty there. It's almost touching my shoulders, which I'm pretty excited about. <laughs> but, um... And you, I'm still having seizures at this stage. And like they're happening when I'm I'm completely overwhelmed, like I'm physically exhausted and there's bright lights and you're hot mm. and there's loud sounds. It's like it's almost like so I've had a million operations by this point too. Like way back in the chemo days. They're giving me an operation. I think once a week where they drill a small hole in my spine and put chemo into your spine, and that's called a lumbar puncture. So I'm doing a lot of general anaesthetics, like a lot of general anaesthetics. And the seizure thing feels like the beginning of a general anaesthetic. When you're going to sleep and, like, I remember doctors tapping an instrument and you'd hear that ting, 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 ting. Yeah. Or they'd talk to each other and you'd hear the echo. And I made a rule when I was a kid having operations they weren't allowed to talk or touch anything until I was asleep. And so mum would stay in the room until I was asleep and then go. Why is that? Because it was scary? Because I felt like I would hear the sound and then it would make me want to stay in the living realm, I guess I'll call it, but stay conscious. And I would fight going to sleep 
And that was such an extreme feeling as a child to try and hold on to staying awake while you've got a drug in you that's putting you to sleep. And it, it's super traumatic. It makes the wake up a lot more traumatic. Yeah. Whereas if you just go to sleep and I could, I would chant Hare Krishna. So I had yeah. a meditation going on. So it's like your mantra. Yeah. But yeah. if they, their noise was going on, that would distract yeah. me from that and change it. But if I chanted Hare Krishna, I would just drift into that and fall asleep. And then you'd wake up a lot nicer. But I'd wake up, yeah, super traumatized from the others. As you're saying this, that's what's so scary. is like how you're telling this and describing it. You're saying it in a way like that um, I must know like that. Would that you know how you're like oh you know like when you get get oh, a yeah. natural anesthetic you, you know when you get your um you know when you get your what's the general called? anesthetic yeah general yeah. anesthetic and you're just going and I'm thinking I'm trying to think fuck have I ever had one yeah sorry you know what I mean <laughs> no no and that's yeah. what it's like such a realization yeah. that this was your reality yeah you know for you this is like yeah. your your normality at this stage and it's so scary like that yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> meanwhile um. <laughs> That joint that just went around, where the fuck is that Oh, yeah, from? also, sorry, so just to sneak something else in. <laughs> is that, it smelled like BC Bud, like, pretty, like it's it from called? Canada. Um, it's called Tangerine Dream. Oh, my God. And you, I, as I, it smelled like Canada when it, was, when it was lit, when you lit that. Yeah, and then we, I was like, have, we should have given a warning with that one. Yeah, was, <laughs> sorry, I'm, still, I'm sitting in this story and I'm starting to melt. I'm, I'm yes. gripping onto the table. Yeah, here. I didn't. It didn't even get into my brain that you were doing it, and so it must be our weed. But yeah, yeah. sorry about that. How's that bright light going for you? Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, so oh, you. Mm-hmm. So the seizures just just straight product yeah. from. Is that just straight a product from your chemo? Yeah. And from your body, like yeah, adapting back, like what? No one has m- many massive answers. It's not. It's not neurological like epilepsy, yeah. Um, so they can't treat it. But I guess it's from chemical poisoning is the, is the closest. Like, but no one's mm. given like an actual yeah. answer. You What's know? your diet at this point? Is your mum putting you back? Um, yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty back to normal now. Hmm. I'm still so vegetarian. So because of the se- se- seizures, you didn't have to go on a keto diet or oh, anything. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> God, food was a journey. See, I haven't even touched on that during chemo. That was wild. Um, but the seizures, yeah, like I said, it feels like you're going into going to sleep. But then when you come to as a teenager, everyone naturally rushes to someone having a seizure, yeah? Yeah. And so you're always waking up and there's heaps of humans around you and then you're just so embarrassed and you're already super self-conscious and feel like you're a weirdo. And then I just get so embarrassed that you go back in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that was pretty wild. And having to like manage that on school camps and trying not to die of embarrassment and everything was pretty it was pretty confronting and so how old are you at like this stage like 15 yeah now i'm about 15 okay, 16 okay as a 15 16 year old young woman mm. right okay so now you all this stuff is happening you're having self-esteem issues mm. what about like the the natural progression for you with like boys like, oh, as in like you know like yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and I just mean like, as in like liking boy or like, you know, I, I don't know the, the walls of, I'm one of the boys was the best protection to, yeah. to be in. Cause I didn't feel attractive at all in mm. any form. So I just became one of the boys. Yeah. yeah that was the, this is the age learning. Like it's yeah. the age where like, I remember being so scared to ever mm. talk to girls. They're all my mates cause you all grew up with them. But then actually like around 15, 16, it was when you started looking at them differently. Yeah. Totally. Like, Oh wow. Like she's, 
quite pretty and then like it's like you learn how to deal with that yeah you know what i mean or, or to you know that's a whole thing and like if you if you are so scared and like so much so oh yeah, you know what i mean hard. like that just the normal like kind of stepping stones for teenagers is like you didn't have it's just a car just backing up in the sound it's gonna it's the one that ran into uncle roger's car <laughs> or my <laughs> he's helping him out which is a bit wild oh yeah so those natural things that you would have learned, like becoming into yourself, you would have had to learn that down the track or like that would have been a whole... Yeah, yeah. I had to reckon, relearn everything. Do you reckon you pick back up on that? Like when do you reckon life started becoming normal for you? Well, it was like getting pretty normal around um, starting school age. Like I had friends that, yeah, I felt normal around. I felt like on their level. But you're still seizuring. I still, I still feel like an alien. And I guess one of the psychological things of 11 years old, now that I've seen a lot of psychologists, yeah. is that that's where you're placing your place in the world. That's where you're building up where you fit and what you mean. Like your whole idea of you and self is happening then. And so it was really hard to start to feel not different. You know, I had, that took a lot of years, but it's starting to happen now. And then I guess I need to skip over the next couple of years because they're pretty... How's your mother's chickens? And there's a lot coming up. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. Take your time. But, yeah. um, but the next couple of years is just, yeah, slow gaining to health, seizures, trying to be normal at school, like trying to catch up on the academic level was a really, really hard thing. And then I probably dropped out of school in year 11 at the end of year 10 and I spent a year at home smoking weed dealing with PTSD because it just all of a sudden as soon as I started feeling normal it all just hit me mm. like a ton of bricks did did your parents let you stay home or did you just start staying, staying my home my parents let me stay home I was like I'm really mangled and I started seeing some counselors and and talking about those about the PTSD and the counselors were describing it like there was a room of water that I hadn't quite yeah. I hadn't dealt with this whole room of the emotion that was the water in the room and I couldn't just open the door and let it trickle out. Like it was all just going to come yeah. splashing out. How, how, did, how did the PTSD affect you? Was that like high anxiety? Were you like... Um, self-harm because I knew how to deal with physical pain better than emotional pain. Yeah. Heaps of anxiety. And because you're and so depression. used to the yeah. physical pain. It was heaps better, easier just to, to do that, which was... And this was that whole, that, that why me yep. um, frame mm. of mind you're in. Mm. So I go pretty deep into that. And then after that year of just smoking weed <laughs> and working through it and writing heaps and doing heaps of artworks, like it ended up being super healing. Then I guess I'm about 18 and my brother comes home one day and I'm in my room I'm sulking about something and he just gets into bed next to me and he's like, open up your mouth and puts a little piece of paper in my mouth. And I was like, what the fuck is that? Why are you putting paper in my mouth? And he was like, it's acid. Mom and dad have had it too. This is going to be awesome. <laughs> and I was like, what? And so two weeks prior to this, I'm starting yeah. to see friends take drugs and do things, but I don't know like if how that's going to affect me like physically because of everything that I've all the drugs that I've had in chemo yeah so I kind of want to dabble with things 
and I know that it's all right to talk to my parents about, but I don't want to dabble with them without knowing. And so I asked Dad, like, I'm seeing people take acid and it looks amazing and I'd really like to take it. And he had this big, awesome chat with me about, like, whenever you have a trip and it starts turning and things start to get weird or dark or out of place, you just need to remember it's your trip and you've always got the key. And you've got the key. And I was like, all right, cool. And he talked to me about, like, I'm a super spiritual dude, talked to me about all the angles of acid and what it could teach me and da 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 And then, yeah, two weeks later, my brother walks into my room and puts acid in my mouth. And then all of a sudden I'm tripping with my mum and dad and my brother and it was amazing and so healing. Do you reckon that was a, a plan that they had to connect you guys all together and to give you an experience and to like kind of like... Like I'd like to think that. Yeah. But I actually think Israel just came home and had us and just gave it to everyone. But I really want it to be the other I way, like Israel. it was planned. But no, it was definitely Israel. It sounds like one of those dudes, you never know what's going to happen. It's yeah. just always yeah. exciting. Yeah, indeed. We just had our other friends walk in. Yeah, these guys are staying in from Poland. Hello. This is Sam and Sarah Kai. And we just smoked it. You should... We're extremely stoned right now. <laughs> oh, no. So, you, yeah, it, here it is. Yeah. Enjoy. <laughs> and this is Maria. Hi, Hello. Maria. Nice How are you? And, and Vietek. Well, we, I say Derek, it's way easier. Vietek. 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 They're really amazing people. Lovely to meet you. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Okay, so sorry, guys. We're just <laughs> but feel free to listen. Um, where were we? We're tripping with my parents. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you're having Anyway, this. it's beautiful. Dad's playing the flute to Krishna in all the trees around the house and he's explaining that to me and mum's giggling at the rainbow spiders crawling all along the table in the kitchen. I'm like, Israel's like, you know those um, mirrors in carnivals where like they... they Yes. They twist you up and then they, they make it really wide and it's just moving everywhere. Israel's doing that at me with my acid eyes. And it was amazing. Anyway, soon after that, I just decided I needed to be a chef. It was like that acid trip was just like, click, you're ready to do stuff again. And so I decided that I need to be a chef, but I can't go do an apprenticeship because of my seizures. And I'm not back to health properly yet. Yeah, can't fall over with knives. No, it's not ideal. <laughs> and like hot pans of oils, it's not gravy. But I ring up the TAFE and I find out that you can, well, I can start studying before I do an apprenticeship. So I get into that and that's amazing. Like I found so much confidence in the kitchen because chefs are already kind of different from society. And yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it was great. Yeah. yeah, I found a little camaraderie there. And um, I did that for a few years in the Hunter and I'm working funny hours, which chefs do. And I'm fully healthy at this stage. Like, I've only had one or two seizures over those three years, four years. But then I start to find that my liver is getting really, really sick. I'm going funny colours again. and So you, obviously you're used to warning signs and seeing yeah. your body start to, to yeah. react to something. So... Have you gone back to acting like it isn't happening, or by this stage are you like, no, I need to, I need to deal with this straight away? I know that I need to do something, and I want to go see like an alternative healer, but I'm not like putting any effort into it or anything. And then I'm on a trip 
I just go for a holiday to Byron to visit my brother Nehemiah that lives there. And I'm on a trip with him and he was like, there's this Chinese herbalist that you have to see. And I was like, all right, cool. We tried to get into him and he was overseas and we couldn't see him. And then on my last day of the trip, Nehemiah was like, I'm not ready for you to leave because he just had a baby and I was hanging out with them. And so he bought me a plane ticket for the next day. And that morning of the morning when I was leaving, the healer had just gotten back to Byron, checked his message bank, found my message, rung me up, and I got to see him that day. And, like, he's booked out for years, this guy. It was just so click, click, meant to be. And then he was just really fucking full on. He, like, grabbed me by the hands and went, you're going to fucking die if you don't change your life. You can't be a chef. You can't keep living the life that you're living. And, like, I'm living in a pub working full time as a chef. Yeah. And so I'm not, yeah. Yeah, crazy not. hours. Just, yeah, yeah, it's what. He convinces me over the next two months in quite aggressive emails that I need to move to Byron to be healed by him. I was like, all right, cool. I guess it's not that bad to move to Byron Bay. <laughs> and so I packed up all my things and moved to Byron. And, and how old are you here? I'm 23. Yeah. Yeah. So four years of chefing back yeah. in The Hunter. And, and and this stage of your like early twenties and you're like working and everything and like are you like drinking? Like, I'm living my teen years that yeah. I missed out on. So your your health is back to the yeah. that you can. You and can... so I'm smoking heaps of weed. I can barely drink alcohol. I'm still like it doesn't work for me. But I've just discovered ecstasy and everything's great. I've had that acid trip with mum and dad. Yeah. Cool. And yeah, I feel like I'm finally getting my teen years that I missed out on. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And Byron was amazing. It was transient and you were meeting all different people all the time. And everyone generally had, <laughs> it wasn't Cessnock, everyone generally had like happiness to them. And, you know, you're walking into a shop, you know what it's like. You get yeah. eye contact instantly and you're like, hey. Whereas I found Cessnock super closed and a little yeah. bit negative. And yeah, fuck, everything's amazing there. Which would have been great for your, your mentality, your, mm. your vibe, you know. Mm, totally. So what did this guy do? Oh, what was wrong with you, you, with your liver? My, something's going on with my gallbladder and my gallbladder is spitting acid onto my liver and poisoning it. So we have to heal my gallbladder. I don't know if you've ever had any Chinese herbs. They rank, yeah, They're disgusting. They're fucking disgusting. Yeah. And these herbs, my poor brother, I live with Nehemiah and his new babies and his wife. Thanks, guys. And um, I have to cook these herbs all day, every day. And I have to cook for like 10 hours. And it just, the whole house just smells of these herbs. And everyone's just walking around going, ugh, ugh. And then I've got to somehow drink this thick liquid that comes from the herbs. Anyway, it worked. It worked pretty well and very quickly. And I had tests and my liver was fine. And I think, yeah, I think after the course, like I didn't even really see him anymore. But I'm still having massages and different things. But when I've moved to Byron... My best friend from preschool moved to Melbourne. And so we went opposite ways. I get a phone call from his little brother somewhere along the line saying that he's missing. And had I seen him? Because maybe he'd come to hang out with me if he was in trouble or hide in Byron Bay, a pretty good place for it. But I haven't. And then that opened up a whole other chapter. So wait, what do you mean? So one of your best friends from... From Cessnock. From Wollombi. From so, Wollombi, yeah, someone back. that you've grown up with. Mm. So you've moved Born up to and Byron raised. and then you've just got this random phone call saying, oh, hey, hang on a second, have you seen... Yeah, and I would have... And you're like, oh... Well, maybe we shouldn't use his name. I don't know. I anyway, can cut it out. Yeah. Have you seen... 
blah, blah. From there, I'm on a mission to find him because we're in contact all the fucking time. We've been best mates forever and I've just got this feeling that something's, something's not right. And the circumstances were gross, like nobody had seen him, his stuff has gone from the house, blah, blah, blah. I'm trying, his, his dad calls me and gives me a number of someone that he thinks might know him or like there's some loose fucking end going on there. So I'm ringing this number, harassing them. I'm ringing the police down there. I'm ringing everyone. I'm really trying so to So now like, it's a missing person. Now it's Your a best full friend's deal. missing. Yeah, yeah, my best friend's missing and he's not here and what the fuck. And why hasn't he come to me first? Because we always had a deal that and if he got in trouble, because he was doing some dodgy things, if he got in trouble, he would... He would leave and come straight to me because I don't do dodgy things. Yeah, this went on for ages. And do you guys? Did you guys speak often? Yeah, yeah. So you're in like, and I'm like ringing his answering machine, leaving a thousand messages. So annoying for <laughs> the police later. Is his phone off? Yeah, yeah. And emailing and trying the whole Facebook angle, blah blah. I can't even remember how long this goes on for, but I start losing my mind. Like I'm, I'm thinking anyone that looks remotely like him is him and I'm like you know yeah. following people out of shops and stuff and really starting had, to go cuckoo had it become a missing person by this stage yeah and by this stage his mum's on tv you know that kind of missing person yeah like we're all calling him in one morning I woke up and I saw his boss that did dodgy things on the news and there was a huge bust in Melbourne and I just knew at that moment, I remember just being like, fuck, something's really wrong here. Because even though you probably can't talk about it, but you knew the connection mm. and you knew the motive. Yeah. You knew that, hey, your mate's missing. Mm. He's into some dodgy stuff. This guy's just been done. And you've seen the connection. Yeah. And then from there, I get a phone call in the middle of the night from his father saying that, the police have asked him for a DNA sample, so a blood sample, and he's like, "This is this is really bad if they're asking me for a DNA sample because they, they found haven't found him. <gasps> they they may have found a body, and we're both like on the phone at midnight, going, do you think it's blood? Do you think it's this? Like, you know, trying to break it down, which you can't do. It's not long after that that we well, find out that his remains were found in that thing that was on the news, and my best friend has been murdered, and. Yeah, that's a whole other angle. How did that? Do you mind if? Do you mind I if mean, I ask how that felt? Like, of course. Like, did you? Did you? When you, he was missing, did you think that that was a possibility? That because you would think like if he I had just want had an accident. Be. I was so strong in my mind that it wasn't going to be that. But of course, like in hindsight, that's what it would be. You know, if somebody's gone for that long, they're not just hiding, and there's no trace. And, like, his bank card wasn't being used and blah, blah, blah. You know, all those things. Yeah. Anyway, obviously that really... So remains have been found and you've, you've been told that you, your best friend, the, the person that you and you, and his family and your friends have been looking for. Mm. And so but it starts to be, like, I need to talk to police over the phone about what's going on with him. Because he was your best friend. Mm, and he they... can find... Exactly. They want to know what I know, which I don't really know much. But I don't want to talk to police on the phone because somebody's just been murdered. 
and do I know that you're a policeman on the phone and blah, blah, blah. It just opened up into yeah, a whole like, other world. Yeah, because they're like, what do you world. know? Yeah. <gasps> and so I decided that I needed to move out from Byron and move back home and deal with what was going on and be close to the family and stuff. So I moved back to Newcastle. Were you ever scared that someone was after you? Of course. I was paranoid as fuck all the time. And so unwarranted. Like, why would somebody want me? What have I got to do with anything? I was someone's friend. (laughs) But, of course. Like, I'd freak out if my housemates left the door unlocked in Newcastle and I was having a nap. I'd skits out at people and be like, you can't do that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it became pretty wild. And so I moved back to Newcastle and then we eventually had... A court case and I went to the court case in Melbourne and blah 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 that obviously went on for quite a chunk but we'll just cruise through there <laughs> and well, his family <laughs> his family okay. decided to have a doof as a fundraiser because they'd lost heaps of money with everything and we're going to lose their property and so we decided to have a doof as a fundraiser and it was kind of a farewell because me and the little brother of my best friend that was murdered had decided that we would leave the country after the court case due to paranoia as well and just what a good time to get the fuck away. Yeah. <laughs> and so we had this dwarf and that's where I met Sam. And so it turns out that Sam has had the same friend group as me the whole time and we've grown up just along across the mountain. But this is the first time that we meet. And it was an amazing party. I think a week before the party I had a fundraiser and shaved my... By this stage, I've got massive dreadlocks. Like, I got dreadlocks at about 21. And then by now, they're down to my bum and they're big dreadlocks. But I don't want to be recognised after the situation that's just gone down. And so I have a fundraiser and shave my dreadlocks and raise money for a, a children's cancer um, charity. And so I've got a bald head at this door and I'm freezing too. It's wild. And the next morning... After the party, which was so good, I decided that oh, my friends had DMT and they were going to give it to me as a present. And I'd never tried DMT, and I was like, "Whoa!" I was super apprehensive and being like, "That's a pretty wild thing to do at this doof after all these hectic things have gone down." Yeah, but maybe the perfect time. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, a group of friends and me. I was like, "If I'm doing it, I'm doing it at sunrise under a tree." So we get all our stuff together and we walk up the hill, and there's just like a discarded hammock. <laughs> So we grab the hammock and there's two trees perfectly to put the hammock in, of course. Like it just all unfolds. Mm. Oh, there's a pillow there. Cool. So I get in the hammock and I have a bong of DMT. And the only thing I can see in my whole DMT fractal universe is Sam standing in the the middle. And he starts doing like jellyfish arms, which I did (laughs) not like. (laughs) I remember shutting my eyes and being like, don't move. But yeah, he was pretty prominent in that little moment, which is... And do you feel, feel that that's where you guys truly connected? No, I hated him after that for some oh, reason. Really? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it didn't didn't work from there. I think just because he was a new friend and I just lost a friend, and he was yeah. in the same group, and there was something weird yeah. going on in my mind. Yeah, I just just for anyone um, who doesn't know what DMT is, it's just it's pretty much just ayahuasca without the other route that numbs the liver mm. for it to prolong the experience. So it's just it's the same as yeah dimethyltryptamine. Just so it's, yeah, you had a, a short ayahuasca experience. And, yeah. and we, we had a huge conversation this afternoon of how growing it's been, yeah. ceremonies that we've both done with that, with the ego splitting and learning about ourselves. Yeah. But so you, you, you've had this trip. 
um, with Sam at this <laughs> doof before you're about to go overseas. Yeah. And to- so a week later, I'm setting off to India and I don't know for how long, but I'm going on a journey to to heal, I guess. So you're going on your pilgrimage. Yeah. Oh, when I first, that's that whole other chapter. When I first moved to Byron Bay, I lived in the most amazing property you could ever dream of. And Lord David, who owns the property, was like a 60-year-old dude who was a multimillionaire and retired and really liked acid. (laughs) Really liked acid. And so he had like a sandstone island in the backyard with a big moat around it. And he had like the thinker statue. Yeah. You know that guy? And he's got like a massive towering Buddha. Anyway, I'm lucky enough to live in that property while all these things are going on, while my friend's missing, while all this stuff is going on. So I'm in a paradise because I've got a garden to walk around and meditate on anyway he was like a great teacher and borderline guru to me but yeah. i would never say that to him <laughs> yeah. and when just before i set off to india i go back up to byron and david doesn't know that i'm coming like he doesn't know that i'm going to pop in he knows nothing but he knows that i'm start. i've been pretty sick again because of all the stress of everything that's been going on and i walk into his house and as i walk in he just whips up an envelope with my name on it. And I was like, what the fuck? How do you even know I'm going to be here? What do you mean? Yeah. And I was like, what's in the envelope? And he said, there's a thousand dollars in there, Sarah Kai. You're going to India. I've booked you into this ashram. This ashram's going to heal you. And I've put enough money in there for a flight from anywhere in India. So there's no arguments. And I was like, all right. <laughs> You're cool. kidding me. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, Lord David. So, yeah, I went to India first with with Emil, my best mate, and we just travelled a bit for about three months. And then after that, I ended up in this healing ashram that the Lord David had paid for. And, oh, yeah, it was amazing. So so what was the ashram like? It was an Ayurvedic ashram. Yeah. And so I had massages four times a day and all different types of massages and was bathed in different oils and and different scrubs and different herbs were like... Like they had a little gas bottle with a little frying pan there and they get these balls of herbs and heat them up and then slap me with them in different parts of my body. It was pretty full on, some of the treatments. And yeah. a lot of stuff came up. Like emotions? Yes, like heaps. And I was having enemas, which is like I was not ready for. I was super angry at David about <laughs> I remember ringing him the night before saying, I'm having a fucking enema. What have you done? And he loved it. But like so much gunk was coming out of my body and so much old stories and muscles were being worked and yeah a lot went down in that ashram it was amazing thank you david yeah and what what do you feel you let go let go of emotionally because you know they say like emotions like hold within mm. our body and our muscles and like you know that's there's I a guess, lot of health issues that can be involved with i guess some of the story that like was attached to me i helped with that but like, do you feel that's where you let go of the why me story? Mm, the one that exactly. was... Yeah, I felt worthy yeah. after there. Yeah, you started was, to love yourself. It was, yeah, it was amazing. And during that, like, you do a few days of silence, similar to Vipassana, but not yeah. 10 days. And, um, yeah, yeah, all around healing. And, like, you're in a small village where you're only hanging out with other Indians and I'm learning cooking from them and, yeah, it was, it was great. And... Yeah, so do you reckon that's, that pivotal moment was you 
really growing into yourself? No, it was the beginning. I love these moments for people. <laughs> and it's always the same thing. It's because they start accepting them for who they are. Mm. And it's just it's starting to love yourself. Mm. You know what I mean? Totally. It's that realization. is like, wow, you know, like I'm here being me. Like I'm here as a unique manifestation that I am. Mm. And it's like that realization mm. That's who you are. And for some reason, we get confused in that. And I, I remember Rio, a friend of mine from Byron, said, said to me years ago, he's like, he said, if you don't love yourself or if you aren't accepting yourself for completely who you are, like if you think, you know, you should be better in this way or that, or like my lips should be like this, you, need, you think you need a puff of marble, like, you know, like, yeah. he's like, he said, it's like you're telling the whole of existence that you got it wrong. You know what I mean? You're telling the whole of existence that I'm not who I'm supposed to be. I should be someone else. Yeah. Right? And he said, it's just, what do you have to say? It's just as is likely. He's like, you have a pretty small brain compared to the whole of existence. So he's like, it's more likely that it's a miscommunication on your behalf. Mm. You know what I mean? Totally. Because you are this miracle. Yeah. That's why I think about it sometimes. And if I ever, you know, have a moment, I'm like, fuck, like, we all of us here have like this we 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 won the race already to be here you know what i mean as little sperm that made it here we we made mm. this this thing of life to be exactly like we won the lotto to be here and now we get this chance to like experience it yeah. right and then it's like it's like someone going oh he gave me a ticket for life but nah i want another one you know what i mean it's like nah it's the ticket you got to go enjoy it man like you know here's a ticket here's here's a life go fucking experience and and you it's your unique your unique lesson kind of totally. thing yeah so you realize that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no you're high <laughs> i was like hang on a second i was getting a bit deep there Oh, that's right. Thank you, Sam, for passing that around earlier. Tantrine dream. Yeah. Okay, so, so you've, you've started to become into yourself. Yeah. Too. And I guess in India, like from the beginning, because I've got lots of anxiety before there and all that stress and grief and crap, and I found this calmness in the chaos that was India. Like India just being so externally wild around me just calmed me and like i didn't yeah i, I was a different being there you still krishna oh i've kind no i've let go of that yeah because organized religion yeah you know there was yeah. a certain age where i was <laughs> yeah. like <laughs> yeah you're gonna do your yeah it wasn't now. fully yeah letting me be fully me yeah. anymore there was there was a lot there's a lot going on within that for females particularly i think yeah but but i still chant every night even now Mm. I chant Hare Krishna every night. Yeah, the chaos of India. Fuck, I just loved it. It was mental. And I felt so at home. More at home than I'd ever felt, which is weird. Because look at me. Right? Yeah. I shouldn't feel at home. <laughs> we, we're <laughs> not <wild>. Indian. <laughs> yeah. 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 But I guess, like, it's bringing back everything of that section of childhood from just before I got sick, you know. Yeah, that, that excitement. That excitement and that Indian dance and the colour and... And the food and the, the all wow. of it, you know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah, it's yeah. connecting it's like you... me to that bit of me that I've I've cut out. No, yeah. I forgot and that you about. Mm. So that was pretty cool. And then from there, I moved into my godmother's ashram, and she has an ashram called Tapavan, which is based around this ancient uh, yagna or fire, which is called Agnihotra, which happens at the exact point of sunrise. And the exact point of sunset and you burn cow dung and offer ghee and rice to the fire 
And the whole purpose of the fire, I guess, is to purify the atmosphere and heal the atmosphere. And so it's galvanizing that energy of the first break of daylight in wherever you are and yeah. the time changes wherever you are. And yeah, so I go and move in there. Wait, is this ashram in India yeah, as well? Yeah. yeah. So by now I've moved into, so I've been all the touristy side and the ashram for the Ayurvedic thing was in Kerala, which is lush and tropical and coconuts and, yeah. you know. And now I move into the heart of Maharatra, which is seven hours north of Mumbai yeah. in the desert. Yeah. In the barren desert. But the ashram, because it's an Agnihotra ashram and it's run by my godparents, it's lush and green and has all of these Homer organic farms on it and different gardens and there's cows there and there's a big um, a big yurt that in the morning all of the village from around there and all the people that live on the ashram all meet in this yurt to do their morning sunrise Agnihotra together. And so we all sit in a circle with all of our own copper pyramids that we burn our little ceremony in and do the mantra together. And fuck. Isn't that amazing? Getting a whole group of humans Gosh. together at those two most magical times of the day to all just sit and, and yeah. have a moment. Oh, you just had me so in that story and in that moment that I was like, oh, I want to experience that. And I was like... I was like, I wonder if another ashram's come on me. Yeah, well, I did Agni Hotra this morning. Yeah, next to the road where we slept. Yeah, on the side of the road. That's why he was talking about the sound of the birds just before the point of sunrise. Before, because I'm always sitting outside building my fire at that time. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So that was a trip. So you get up every morning at sunrise? Yeah, well... No, yes. no, but yeah, but the mornings you do get up, and because I'm a female, I can't, I can't do it when you're on your period. So I get a week off here and there, okay. which is always a bit of. What a if thing. you went to bed real late? Do you get up and then go back to bed? Yeah, I get up and go, go back to bed every morning, and then Sam makes coffee. It's great. That's our routine. Good I get boy. up and I meditate, and I go back, and Sam gets up, and makes coffee, and then I get up and do breakfast. It's great. Oh, nice. It's perfect. It's so peaceful at that hour. Mm. So just. You know, when she's doing the fire, yeah. you can just have a little meditation to yourself. Yeah. You know, listening to the nature around you and the sun's breaking light. And, My uh, little mantra. Yeah. Mm. yeah. It's a good way to open the day. Yeah. Good way to open the day. I, I remember my uncle does the same thing when we're in nature. I was doing it in my, um, down at my property. I was sleeping out in winter. I love doing it. Sleeping out of my swag above the stars. I mean, above the, with the, under the stars. And you go to sleep with the forest and you wake up with the forest and the forest wakes up like it's like 20 minutes before sunlight or half an hour before sunlight just comes alive. And just, I know what you mean because just before sunlight breaks, it's just the forest is just alive. Yeah. It's like a secret intelligence that just, you know, wakes up with the sun. It's quite cool. And so right now you guys are kind of in tune with that. So, so we're after India. So being in the ashram and your godmother's ashram. I lived there for eight months. Eight months and just doing what? Just doing Agni Hotra in the morning, Agni Hotra at sunset. And then she runs a woman's program, which is it's called Rose Circles. And so she gives jobs to women that have lost their partners, usually to AIDS in these villages from having a dirty needle from a doctor. Yeah. And these women, there's not a lot of options for a single woman to make money for her family in India. And um, she gets them to sew and they sew these little roses that they sell in Australia for $2 each and that then goes back to paying their wage. 
and in addition to that, they sell, they have like a clothing company called um, Wild Blackberry or something. And so she's got all these sewing rooms in the, like the Archman's amazing. Yeah. She's got like the cow shed and then they're taking the cow dung from the cow shed in the morning and taking it to the top of a roof and splatting it out into the paddies, which at night we break up to burn in our fires. So there's that whole operation yeah, going yeah. on. There's a whole farming food operation going on and they're farming whatever's going on with the season at that time and it's amazing. And then there's the boys with the cows. Like you don't have like a big fenced area in India and as I said, we're in the desert. So there's a whole group of boys that just walk the cows around during the day to different spots where there might be some grass and stand around with sticks and wait and try and herd them around, the cow herd boys. The cow herd boys. Yeah, so good. Yeah, and then she's got these big sewing rooms in the centre where there's all of this, like, old antique materials that we drive the seven-hour drive quite regularly to Mumbai and go to, like, the material markets and stuff, and stuff gets um, donated as well. And, yeah, it's great. I got to work in there and meet all the ladies. And and, and are you healthy at this stage? Do you still feel like you're healing? You, I'm you're still just, healing. But this is your pilgrimage mm. right now. Right now, this is your pilgrimage. You've had this huge realisation. Yeah. Now you're off like being yourself. Like. And there's other little things coming out because I've had that big detox. Do you know yeah. what I mean? So there's a few other little health hiccups going on. But we're dealing with it all with Ayurvedic stuff. And so I'm just getting heaps of rest there and heaps of meditation and heaps of learning and feel like generations of of stuff is just coming out and being put into these fires and fuck i'm having the best time how would you well okay because you've had this huge healing healing you've had this huge healing trip right that's like really helping you really getting you to come into yourself this ayurvedic how would someone else do that oh you know what i mean like is there you can easily go do that. Can anyone go do that? Yeah, you can easily go do that. Yeah, but how? But you have to find the right place. Like, obviously, there's going to be places that are built on the the business side of that. So, what would you, you just Google, I mean? like, Ayurvedic healing ashram India? You would Google Poonsottam healing ashram in India and go to that one because I think, I think that's probably the best. Because if you just widely Googled, you'd need to know or have, like, a review from someone saying that they'd been there. And yeah. I only knew that one because David had just known that one somehow, yeah. you know. You definitely be careful because, like, you're having some pretty wild treatments going on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, do you, and do you feel, what's your, what's your opinion on, on that way of treatment compared to our modern way of, like, hospitalisation and treatment? Like, how? Oh, well, in heaps of ways, I believe that's better. But, like, in my instance, I think that using both is the only way that I survived. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if I had just done chemo, I wouldn't have survived the chemo. But yeah. If I had just done an alternate, the cancer was growing so quick that I wouldn't have survived the cancer. Yeah. So I needed the chemo to kill the cancer and I needed the herbal to survive the chemo. Yeah. Which I think, I think it kind of goes down into most of my belief with, with it now. Like I use Western medicine to have all the tests, like I still have tests all the time now. I use it to have all the tests and then I figure that out and then I choose which avenue I go down to, to heal the different thing. Yeah. And um, I think I always try alternate first. How, how often do you have to have tests now? I should be having them still every three months, but I probably have a blood test once every six months now. 
And have they ever seen any signs of anything else? I've definitely had like a thousand cancer scares, <laughs> but never a leukemia scare, so that's good. But they always just naturally think everything's cancer now with me, you know? Yeah. Like find a lump here and everyone's like, well, and then, yeah, I've and, definitely had and, a lot. And because you had leukemia, would now you'd be more susceptible to getting cancer? I am seven so times much... more susceptible to getting any other form of cancer. Because you've had so much cell damage. Because I've had so much, yeah, chemo makes you more susceptible to cancer. Yeah, I've, I've seen the what? truth about cancer. It's fucking next level. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah, I still believe both kind of have their place. Both ways of treating Eastern and Western. So where did your life go after, after India? So I've done a world of healing and then I've come back to Byron. I came back and tried to figure out where I was going to fit and I chose to move back to Byron. And um, I got a job in a little cafe in New Brighton. That was great. I became the head chef of there and, and that was awesome. And I did that for like six months and then I went straight back to India. <laughs> and I went straight back to the Ayurvedic ashram and had another big healing, which is great. And then I travelled for a fair bit and I spent a lot of time in Goa. I danced my face off to side to hands and yeah, that's it was amazing. That's what they do in Goa? That's what they do in Goa. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that was amazing. And then back to Australia and back at the Yum Yum Tree. And by the stage, I've been working there on and off a bit. Yum Yum Tree Cafe in Brunswick. That's the in one New Brighton. Yeah. yeah, the one that. I, yeah, sorry, the cafe that I was just talking about. And then Sam's family swoops in and buys a cafe. And you know, I'm in Byron Bay. Like I, I decided not to move back to the Hunter. Remember, I'd met Sam in the Hunter in the DMT trip. Did he know you were working there? Did you? Sam, were you like, oh, there's this girl up there. Can you please buy this cafe, mum and dad? No. <laughs> I had no idea because my brother and father had already gone ahead with it and I was still living in Newcastle. So this is just a huge coincidence. Yeah. 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 And I've just moved up and then walked in and then there she is in the kitchen. Yeah. And did you, when, when, when you met at that festival, did, had you just hooked up? No. No. So you just, you just met. No. Yeah. And then, that's right, when I'm in India and I'm living in that ashram, my godmother's one, I'm studying all these different mantras, but I fall in love with Gayatri Mantra. And I'm really studying that and studying the pronunciation because Sanskrit is very hard for a Western mouth to, yeah. to speak. Anyway, I'm really studying that. And then I see on Facebook one day, Sam's just got the whole symbol for the Gayatri Mantra tattooed on the back of his leg. And by this stage, I'm still like, this guy's trying to steal all my friends. Like this guy. And I'm like, fuck <laughs> you, you got the fucking Gayatri Mantra tattooed on your leg? This shit. Yeah. And then, yeah. <laughs> So it's like our lives from the very beginning have just gone shwink. Yeah. Shwink. It's like, yeah, you, you, <laughs> you just had to share a journey together. You had to come together at some stage. Yeah. Everything was pointing that way. And so now you've gone back, you're working in the cafe that you always worked in, and then just randomly Sam's family buys the cafe. Super weird. How is that like for him, for you, then him becoming your boss? <laughs> it was know, a, that was an easy transition, really. Yeah. And I'm, I, I've been a chef for a while now. I'm very strong in a kitchen. Like that's where I'm my We've most seen confident. We've Instagram photos. Actually, yeah, that's I've where I'm my most comp. Like I'm, I'm bold, strong though. You know, yeah. like in the personality. So I don't think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I think they, Sam may have been more scared of me than me scared of him <laughs> as the boss. <laughs> and so, what you hooked up and then decided to buy a van and travel Australia. Yeah. And we've been, we went out on one date and we've been together every single day since that date for three and a half years now. Even worked the same shifts. We've worked together our entire relationship. 
like three years of working 50 hours a week, working the same shifts, being together on the weekends. We'd go camping on the weekends. And then after three years, obviously, we started thinking about like where our life's headed and settling down and stuff. And we're like, fuck, there has to be more than what yeah. we've just experienced because you, know, you, you need to really, yeah. You want to get yeah. to know someone outside of just working with them. And so we just went, fuck. And then this idea was birthed of buying a van and it happened very quickly. Like it wasn't very long until we had the van. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And then um, two weeks before we were about to go, the whole COVID bomb just dropped and um, we had nowhere to go and our bosses had let everyone go and because mm. I was working with her at another establishment at, at, by this say. point. Yeah. Um, and then we just had to move out to her parents' house in Kyogle, where we lived in a shed <laughs> for uh, three months. Yeah. Yeah, that was pretty Didn't wild. Didn't COVID, hasn't it just... <laughs> like, that was a pretty wild anticlimax to where we were building up to. We've yeah. been working every day for three years, and the last year we'd just been like, we knew we were working for this dream. Yeah. We are putting money away and slowly building the van as cheap as we could. And then all of a sudden, it was like, yep, you're going up, oh, COVID what <laughs> so then right. so then back to just sitting and waiting but then you've you've obviously those are you've seen the light and you've jumped in the car and you yeah you've had well everyone just started talking about my brother was working in queensland and this was before the border opened up mm. and he's working in queensland and he was like i've just got like a pass on my car and i go through and then i come back and no one's ever stopped me and i was like oh really and yeah. then more and more people started coming with that story oh man like i I got the pass. It was like, everyone's like, oh, you can't cross the border. I was like, what? I was like, I've got Queensland plates. Mum's there. I'm down this way. I was like, what are you talking about? And I just drove up, drove straight through and no one stopped me. I was like, oh, they just waved you through. Yeah, and then exactly. every day, because I was in Cooley, every day I was just crossing back and forth, back and forth. Yeah. And it was just nothing. I was yeah. like, oh, the news was making out like this. It was this huge thing. It and was then, wild <laughs> on the news. Yeah. And then now suddenly it's, um, now suddenly it has stricken up. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So we got through just before they opened it and then they shut it. Yeah, double which bolt, a lot of travellers have done and that's why there's a lot of travellers up, up yeah. around here right now, which is really cool because now we're exploring and experiencing our, our own country. Yeah, and, totally. and a lot of people have had the same realisation I have, especially with, especially with far north Queensland, is that it's so tropical and beautiful. And I'm like, oh, I go to Asia for this stuff. And it's totally. like right here. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's amazing. And we're in this beautiful town. Look, we're on my uncle's property here, which is just extremely extremely beautiful in the rainforest here in Coranda. Mm. Yeah, like I was saying to a friend, I think I've seen more in two months than I have in probably five years, you know, working. Yeah. yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So what's what's next for your journey now? Well, I guess we just keep heading north. And look, the idea originally was that we're going to do a lap of Oz and just do a little outliney lap and then go up the guts and go to Uluru and then go back down and maybe live in Tassie for a little while. But who knows what the fuck's going to happen That's now the whole thing. with COVID. So, and you know what's really cool We're just going to keep going. And I, I've said this on the podcast a hundred times, and I'm yeah. going to say it again to you guys. And I, it's like a little game that I play, um, and I like to play it when I'm traveling. And, it's, it's, and the game is let the experience take you traveling. Totally. Mm. So yeah. right now, with all this uncertainty, you can't have yeah. a plan. And if you tried to have a plan, it's like going to try to control something, and then it's just not going to be as fun. But it's like, let the experience take you. And whatever happens, if the border shuts there, go there and then find some work or do that. You know what I mean? And so, play yeah. the game with it. And it's going to be so fun. Because like, I think that's what I've been doing. And, and 
Yeah, I'm like, I'm on a really fun time. I'm having so much fun. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> I've been playing down on the Keppel Islands the last couple of weeks and it's freaking insane. Oh, it's yeah. so beautiful. Mm. Yeah, put that on your bucket list. If you get stuck, go to the Keppel Islands. Yeah, a few people have mentioned we're Keppel, actually. Yeah. 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 Absolutely insane. Well, go- Wait, guys, we've been chatting for um, an hour and 40. Woo! Um, we've got these guys sitting around. I think yeah. we're going to have a beer and maybe cook some dinner. And it's getting a little bit cold here in the yeah. rainforest Isn't for some what? weird reason. Yeah, what's that about? <laughs> yeah, Uncle Rog, what's that about? You told me it was hot up here. Yeah. <laughs> Turn up the uh, central oh, heating. <laughs> hey, thank you so much for being so vulnerable and telling such an emotional, heart-filled story. Um, one question, actually. Do you feel beat it totally yeah totally so but you feel you're you now you're just on your yeah and i'm so thankful for all of the the things i wouldn't change any of it is what i'm trying to say i wouldn't change a thing and what would you say to anyone that would go through or is going through something like that or, or what's actually not just to anyone from what you've learned from your life experience of extreme suffering pain um, discomfort like just mm. having to go through something like heartache like that hardship with the whole family and loved ones and and missing out on those years as a teenager and like this is like I'm looking at you as a, as a really wonderful human being you know and Thank you've you. gone to this point but it's like we all have something to pass on mm. you know what I mean like is there is there anything without know, putting you on the spot too much <laughs> like you know what I mean from this experience like what has it taught you like what well, like, you know, there's that old, horribly stereotypical saying, darkness only paves way for the light to come through. Yeah. Like, everything's balance and experience, and and you have to experience dark times and uncomfortable bits to really appreciate all of the layers of magic that's going on around us. Like, the simplest things we should be so thankful for, but we all miss them because we're all caught up in, in whatever, yeah. you know? But once you've had that real... Yeah. Yeah, I just think grab it. We have Get this, amongst it. Yeah. yeah. We have this. I wrote on the. What did I write on that freaking card? How bad is my handwriting too? <laughs> on that treasure that you found. It was a great picture though. Yesterday of the rock. Yeah. That. What did we say? We said something about this is your. I'm trying one, to remember. Your one chance to experience life. Don't yeah. take it for granted. Yeah, no. exactly. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's like, yeah, yeah. Like we said it before. Like you've won the lotto. Like yeah. experience it, you know? But I think, like, yeah, for someone in the struggle, it's, it's going to be worth it. It's all worth it. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. Thanks, Uncle Rog, for letting us in here. Yeah, thank you much, Lee. <laughs> all right, thanks, guys. Good luck with your journey. Thanks, dude. <laughs> so if you like this episode, please feel free to share it and leave a rating. And if you have or know of anyone with a wild story, please get in contact with me through my Instagram, Aaron underscore Shanks, or the website, diariesofthewildones.com, because I'd love to sit down over a beer or a coffee and hear it.
I do it like a double.